This morning, I want you to turn again with your Bibles and your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. Nehemiah, chapter 9, will begin this morning in our study with verse 16. And if you were here two weeks ago when we began at least this section of the of this chapter, beginning in verse 5, we're considering this section as a confession, it's a time of worship. It is told to us in verse 3 that those who they who stood before the Lord their God for the fourth of the day and for another fourth or three hours, they confessed and they worshiped the Lord their God. And so what we see in verses 5 through the end of the chapter are the expressions of this time of worship and this time of confession before God. And we considered previously in verses 5 through 15 of the of the good confession that was made and being led here by the Levites in the worship of the Lord, the good confession of the glories of God. And we saw here that God is glorious in His creation. We saw in verses 5 through through 8 that He, or for, through 7, that, I'm sorry, 5 and 6, we saw God involved in the creation of, of all things of the world as we know. And then we saw God's glory, the greatest of God's glory in His covenant that He established with Abraham, and also we saw the greatness of God's glories in His compassion, verses nine and following. How God remained faithful to do what He did, and keeping His own people safe, providing for them the things that they needed. Or well, today we're going to pick up something of the details again of that expression of God's compassion to His people. We noticed we noted back in verses five through. Through 15, and this section is called a confession, and there's confession of sin here and worship. Verses 5 through 15, there is no confession of sin. There's simply this great confession of the glory of God, which is the beginning point, which is the, the beginning point for any of us. If we have any unction of confessing our sin before God, it's because we first of all have seen some of the glory of God. And so that's thrust before the people here again by the Levites leading this time of worship. This is the glory. This is God, the God of creation. This is the God of the covenant. This is the God who is compassionate toward us. But there is more than a confession of God's glory. There is also the reality of people's sin. And we're going to begin on some of that today. You think with a God who is so good and who is so glorious and so much is right as you see in verses 5 through 15 as we considered two weeks ago. Just all that God that does, all that is so good and it is so right. How could a people with a knowledge of these things go so far wrong? How is that possible? How does that happen? I think it serves as a warning to our own hearts. That we can know much that is right, much that is good of the glories of God, the God of creation, the God of the covenant, the God of compassion. We can know those things, but at the same time we can still go wrong. We can still go wrong. We need to keep these truths ever before us. And we'll, look, we'll see later part of the problem, part of the reason that these things did take place. So we're focusing, we're transitioning here from focusing purely on God's glory in the first in 5 through 15 to a section that contrast the ways of God with the ways of people, with the ways of His own people, with the ways of men. Let's begin reading here in verse 9 of this chapter. It's pretty lengthy. I'm sorry, I'm going to get the wrong part. I'll get it right here. Verse 16 through verse 31. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning verse 16. Again, that the backdrop here is the faithfulness of God, the God of creation, the God of the covenant, and the God of compassion. 
And here's the first recognition of sin, verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly or presumptuously. They became stubborn. Some tra- actually, literally, they, they stiffened their neck. They became stubborn and they would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen. And did not remember the wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And you did give your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from your mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you did provide for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples, and you did allot them as boundaries. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you did bring them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land. And you did subdue before them the inhabitants of of the land, the Canaanites. And you did give them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. And they captured fortified cities in a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in thy great goodness." But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you did deliver them into the hand of their oppressor who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you did hear from heaven and according to your great compassion. You did give them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. As soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you did abandon them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you did hear from heaven. And many times you did rescue them according to your compassion. They admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you did bear with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, if they would not give ear. Therefore, you did give them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, You did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious 
and a compassionate God. You know, most of us, we think back into our high school experience or junior high, whatever the case may be. A call to the principal's office could only mean one thing. <laughs> Bad news. <laughs> if you ever had your name, I can remember an occasion when I was in high school of a list of people. These people need to come by the principal's office. Mine was, mine was on the list, and I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> I don't know what I've done, but I don't want to go. You know, the principal's office was just a place that you don't, care to be called. We've enjoyed on, on occasions the uh, the Hallmark card commercials. And if you've seen one of those commercials is on this where this teenage girl, she gets paged to the principal's office. And this is a girl that everything has a track record of having of been in trouble. And the, she goes into the principal's office. The principal is, is a woman there. And so this girl comes in and she sits down. The, before the principal says anything, she says, I didn't do anything. I'm clean. I haven't caused any trouble. You know how to... <laughs> and then the principal just says to her, you know, sit down. And then she reaches across her desk. She hands to her, you know, the Hallmark card and expressing to her just how proud she is because she hasn't been in trouble. She has indicated some signs of improvement. You know, the, certainly the most unexpected thing in the mind of that teenage girl, I won't tell you why I was called to the office when I was in high school. If it bothers, you can talk to me after church. <laughs> well, this morning, our, our, I think our theme that clearly comes through in these verses here is that God is compassionate. God is merciful. And the idea I convey there is that He loves tenderly. There's a tenderness in the love of God for His people, and it's as though He just cannot help but show it as He gives to His ample opportunity, as He shows it to His people here. Verses 17, verses 19, verses 28, verses 31 make reference to the compassion of God. Pretty clearly this is the theme that the Levites had in mind as they're going through this section. The, the compassion, the mercy of God. You know, who would have ever expected that? Who would have ever expected God to deal with His people as He dealt so often with His people? See, God is compassionate. And because He is compassionate, we have the privilege of enjoying, of participating in His unexpected blessings. Now, one side of us should say, oh, this is God's character, and we should not be so surprised when He demonstrates His grace. But the other side of us says this, can there be so great a grace, so great a compassion, that God would still show kindness and mercy to me even yet? So there's the sense where... And one side would say, knowing the character of God, it shouldn't be unexpected because God has shown Himself to be so full of grace and mercy. But the other side it says, these are most unexpected, most unexpected blessings from the hand of God. Well, first of all, we see that God is a God of great compassion. We see it in our sinfulness, verses 16 and 17. You know, in stark contrast to all that we have seen previous to this in the verses preceding our text today, where we saw that the focus again upon the glory of God in stark contrast, you see here at the beginning point, the blight of man's sin. And what a stark contrast it is. To see God in His glory, to see Him in His wonder and His, and His beauty, the God of creation, the God who, who, create, who originates this covenant with Abram for no reason other than He chooses to. And the God who continues to show His compassion to people who, who does His extraordinary things on behalf of His people. 
you would look at this and you say, how can it be? You know, this is perfect. What would be the response of any people? Any people within their right mind would, would respond with obedience and love and dedication to that God. And yet that's not the case, is it? Verse 16 tells us that our fathers, speaking of their fathers, again, just a review of history. They acted arrogantly, presumptuously, proudly. Unless we make the mistake here of reading into this, it's the sins of our Father that have anything to do with us. Let's make sure we go on to the next section there in verse 32 and 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. So when they speak of their fathers, they're identifying themselves with them. We're of the same tree. This is the sins of our father. They acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and they would not listen. And we're just like them. We are the children of our fathers. So it's not a pointing back and, and casting the blame on a, on a past generation. It's an identifying themselves with that previous generation. But he's, they say they acted arrogantly, arrogantly, proudly, as though that they were something in and of themselves. As though they really didn't need God. They had closed ears. The last part of verse 16. They became stubborn. They would not listen. Closed ears. Would not listen. Dismissed God's law. They would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen. Verse 17. We don't want to hear God's way, God's word. So they closed their ears. They only had closed ears. They had closed minds. The part in verse 17 says, "What well, they did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou had performed among them." What's he saying here? This is not a this is not a problem of memory. This is not just a failure of memory. This is a deliberate putting out of their mind the things that God has done. They did not remember, meaning they chose to not remember these things. They put these things from their mind. They closed their minds to God's deeds. It also tells they had closed hearts. Of course, it's conveyed there just in the words of stubbornness. Literally means they stiffened their neck. You know what that means. You've got children. You've probably seen it. <laughs> you were a child. You've probably, your parents have seen it too, right? You know what it is? Stiffen the neck. Not going to bow. Not going to bow. Not going to submit. So they had their closed hearts. They chose their way and they would not be moved. They chose, in essence, to return. It says there in verse 17, here's, here's their choice. They became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery. Listen, that's your option. That's your option. You don't want to serve the Lord? You don't have to serve the Lord, but you're going to be a slave to someone. So this was it. They chose a slavery in Egypt rather than a joyful and a glad servanthood to God. Contrast the ways of God here in verse 17, the last part of that. But you, verse about midway through the verse there, but you are a God of forgiveness. You're gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Boy, quite a contrast, isn't it? Quite a contrast. The people who are obstinate and closed, and here's, here's the picture of God. He is one who is forgiving, gracious, compassionate. 
What's the confession here? It's this. They recognize this. God has not responded here according to what the people deserve. He's not dealing out justice. He's meeting out grace, mercy, forgiveness. Forgiveness when they're not held accountable for their sin. Their sins are erased. How is that possible? Well, we understand it's possible only through the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness and our sin placed upon Him. Why is it that these descriptions of God here are so important? In this context, why why these words? He's one who forgives. He's one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness. Why are they so important? Because it represents the only possible way for God to fellowship with us. The only way that God could possibly fellowship with fallen men is because He forgives sin. Because He is compassionate. Because He is gracious. Because He's slow to anger. Because He's abounding in loving kindness. If it were not the character of God to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be merciful, then the the record we have of human history would have ended in Genesis chapter 3. Right? But what was the word? The word was, the day that you eat of this tree, you shall die. And we know that there was a death. There was a spiritual death. There was a separation and an alienation from God. But there was just as much a right from the hand of God that He that He bring physical death to Adam right then and there. And it would have been just and right and good. And that would have been the end of human history. Let's go to something else. Remember one man preaching, if he had been God, then his Bible would have been that thick. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> That's it. All done. <laughs> There's no basis of fellowship with God if God's not forgiving. Because all of us need it. And it's a great comfort to our hearts to know that God does not deal with us as we deserve. He's not dealt with me today as I deserve. I didn't deserve a breath of life this morning. I didn't deserve the strength to get up out of my bed. I didn't deserve the air to breathe. I didn't deserve the, the joys and the pleasures of, of my family, of a home. Of a church. I don't deserve these things. God has not dealt with us as we deserve. Our demerits, our sin imputed or charged to Christ, His merits imputed to us. There's the great exchange. Sin for righteousness, righteousness for sin. Sin is not ignored, it's not overlooked, but the penalty for sin is paid in full. That's the beauty of the Christian message. God doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't balance it out with good and bad because He can't be done. Any good is what you ought to do. That doesn't undo the bad. Sin is paid for. The wages of sin is death. The death has come. It's done. It's important, these descriptions of God, because they're the only possible way for God to fellowship with us. But let me tell you this too. These descriptions are the only possible way for man to fellowship with man too. If you're going to have any fellowship with any human being, if you're going to have any fellowship with any brother or sister in Christ, it will only be because you are willing to forgive and they are willing to do likewise. There is no basis for fellowship even among the saints of God if there is not a spirit of grace, of compassion, 
or forgiveness and you look at every breach of fellowship among the people of God. Every breach of fellowship among the people of God is be when these traits are absent. There is no forgiveness. There is no compassion. There is no mercy. Now, I'm not saying that there is never a parting of ways. There are some people who I disagree with theologically on some matters. But we have wonderful fellowship. A dear brother in Middle Tennessee, that he and I actually went to task <laughs> on some theology. But he's a brother in the Lord, and when we get to Middle Tennessee, when we cross paths, there's always a warm embracing, and there is fellowship. I'm not talking about that there may be disagreement. I am talking about when there is a true breach. There's no fellowship. There's no joy of coming together in the fellowship of the Lord. It's because these traits are absent. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Yeah, we preached through Ephesians last year, but this is Paul's word here. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Why? Because if you're going to walk together with the brother and the Lord, you're going to have to be willing to forgive them. And if you're not willing to forgive, you're not going to have fellowship. Because both of you are sinners. There's going to have to be forgiveness. But what does he say? Forgiving each other, why? Here's the foundation. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's put it in perspective. You've been offended. An offense committed against you by a brother or sister in Christ. It pales in comparison to the offenses that you and I are guilty of against God. And God has said, I forgive. There's no comparison. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verses 12. Of course, the context here of the Lord's Prayer. One of the, which I think Neil preached on last Sunday. One of the parts of this is that Jesus, in the model, He says, Forgive our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then His commentary in verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. There's a correlation here between relationships this way and relationship this way. It's rooted in forgiveness. What's expressed toward our brothers and sisters in Christ in the spirit of humility, the spirit of grace, and the spirit of compassion, and the spirit of forgiveness originates because that is what has come first from us. And being forgiven, being forgiven is demonstrated by forgiving. Okay? Being forgiven by God is demonstrated by forgiving my brother and my sister. The offenses will come. I've told you on occasion before, you know, just in a marriage. If Beth chooses to take up what she will against me, she has the arsenal. It's there. She'd have to make it up. It's there. I mean, I'm loading it here. Here's some more of my faults, and she can take it. But she doesn't. Likewise, I can do the same. She's not a perfect wife. 
and take them up. If I choose to. I had a brother one time talking. He said, you know, I can get in the frame of mind where my wife can do nothing right if I let her. If we let it. I choose not to take it up. Most of the time. <laughs> you understand? You understand what I'm saying? We can. We're not talking about making up stories. Here's truth. So how do we live together? There's a lot of forgiveness. A lot of mercy. A lot of compassion. God is great. He demonstrates His compassion in our sinfulness. He also demonstrates His compassion in our sustenance. Verses 18 and following. We see here in verse 18 where it's kind of like the Levites get to a point. I cannot imagine this the extent of the defiance and the rebellion of the, of the people of God in verse 18. The first two words... Even when they made for themselves. He's like, I can't believe they did this. They went this far. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from heaven and committed great blasphemies. Even when they did this. God's Word and through Jeremiah and Jeremiah chapter 2 we'll not turn there 2.13 he speaks there of two evils that my people have committed first of all they have forsaken me and I am and identifies himself there as the fountain of living water they've forsaken me the fountain of living water and the living water is one that just means that there's there's new fresh water coming in it's like a stream I'm the fountain of living water they've forsaken that but not only have they done that they've gone and they've hewn for themselves cisterns you know what a cistern is? A holding tank. It's stagnant water. They've gone and they've hewn for themselves cisterns, but they're broken cisterns and they can't even hold water. There's the two evils. They've forsaken the fount of living water and they've gone and they've dug for themselves cisterns that can't hold anything. That's the picture of the idolater. That's the picture of abandoning fellowship with God for the false gods that they would choose. So the Israelites, they replaced God. Why would they do that? Same reason we all do. We'd rather have a God that we've made and that way we can do what we want to do with Him. And they did. They made their own God out of gold. Said, this is the God who has brought us out of Egypt. Can you imagine? Man, would you read that story and just kind of scratch it? I mean, they have seen the water part. They've walked through on dry ground. How can they say that this golden calf, this is the God? It's supposed to be a symbol of, a, of an invisible deity. How can they do that? What's God's reaction here? Well, His great compassion is how it starts out in verse 19. There's that word, that great compassion. He didn't forsake them. Continue to express his great compassion by giving to them guidance. He gave them physical guidance. He had that pillar of cloud and that pillar of the fire. You know what? These people, they created this false god. What did God do? Did he take up his toys and go? I'll go find somebody else to put my pillar of fire and smoke in front of. No. He did not remove it. He gave them physical guidance. He remained faithful to His people. He gave them spiritual guidance. He gave them His Spirit. He says there in verse 20, You gave them Thy good Spirit to instruct them. 
Not only gave them guidance, He gave them provision. Verses 20 and 21, He provided for them food, provided for them water, provided for them clothing, gave them to them stamina. They kept walking in the wilderness for all these years and their feet didn't swell. I was on my feet yesterday mowing my yard. I came in from mowing it. it was just, you know, it was out yesterday. It was humid, terrible. I came in just drenched. And I sat down and I told Beth, I said, that was harder than it's been in a long time. And my legs are, my legs are tired even right now. You're tired, man. Give me a seat. They wandered. Their legs didn't swell. He gave them that stamina and that strength. You know, there wasn't any of that. What is the Christmas song? I wonder as I wander. You know, these people weren't wondering as they were wandering. Where's their food coming from? God was providing it. Provided for them the things that they needed. It says there that they did not want. In verse night or verse twenty-one, they were not in want. Guidance, provision. He provided not only that, even prosperity. Folks, we're not talking about just maintenance here. We're talking about even prosperity. That when they were attacked by foes, that they won these battles. They had military success. They had multiple descendants as the next generation was raised up. One of the signs in Scripture at times is of the of the displeasure of God is at the closing of the womb. So they have multiple descendants being given. There's the possession of land that's been promised. They, they actually seize possession of the land. Why do they do these things? Why does God do this? Because they were... These kindnesses, this provision, this care of God for His people was a fulfillment of His covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham. It wasn't for their sake. It's for the sake of the covenant that He made with Abraham and ultimately which we remember the covenant was a one-sided covenant. Abraham fell asleep. Ultimately, it was for the glory of God. I want to demonstrate my faithfulness to you, even in the midst of your unfaithfulness. So he does so. But there are also these good things are a testimony of the love and the compassion that God has for His people. What will God not do for us? Look at the care that God provides. You know, just look at the care that we experience in our daily lives. You know, we might make have the mistaken notion here, even as you look at the blessings that they were receiving here, and God's guidance and His provision and the prosperity placed by them. You might look at this and think, well, God is well pleased with these people. But Paul tells us very clearly in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, with most of these, He was not well pleased. He wasn't. You know, we kind of live with a mentality of the, the sound of music. You know, it must have been something good. Have you ever seen the sound of music? And uh, it's Maria, she's out singing because she's found new love and just love beyond anything you'd expect of this, the bear in there. So she sings this song. You know, I don't know what I've done, but it must have been something good. You know, all this good stuff. You know, we live with that mentality. It's grace. The fact of the matter is that kind of mentality, you know, grace and mercy and compassion comes in and messes up our thinking, doesn't it? You know, I've got to figure it out. This is the way things ought to be. <laughs> this is this is the process. And grace comes in and just messes us all up. Thankful for grace. I'm glad that God does not ration out our our food and our rain and our oxygen on the basis of how well we behaved this week. Glad of that. 
Yes, now you know the scripture tells us it rains on the just and the unjust. Whew. <laughs> God knows our frame, as it was read to us by Randy this morning in Psalm 100. He knows our frame, our ignorance, our, we're made of dust. Our need of Him. He keeps His part of the bargain regardless of how well we do. We need Him. God decides to deal with us strictly on this is what you deserve. There'll be no church next week. Because there'll be no life tomorrow. In our sustenance. God is compassionate. But also in our suffering. Here's the reality. Sometimes we suffer as a consequence of our sin. You can say this experience of suffering and hardship is due specifically to this sin. Right? You rob a bank, you're going to experience the consequence of that sin. If you're caught, and your your suffering in prison will be because of that. Yes, there it is. There's the cause. There's effect. Sometimes we suffer the consequences of our sin. Here's another reality. Sometimes we suffer simply as being fallen creatures in a fallen world. You know, you can't find the cause and effect. We we look for that. And somehow or another, we think, well, this happened because of this, and. The history of God's dealing with His people tells us that they suffered. And in the context of what we see here, that we find here a suffering that came upon these people because of sin. Look in verse 26. They became disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. They killed the prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. There is the sin. Well, what's the consequence? Verse 17. Therefore, you deliver them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. Why were they delivered in the hand of the oppressors? Because of their sin. It was the judgment of God. Verse 28. As soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. God would deliver. God would be merciful to them. They did evil again. Verse 28. There's the sin. Next part. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. So they ruled over them. Here it is. Here's your sin. Here's your judgment and they cried out to thee from heaven. You heard from heaven, and many times you did rescue them according to your compassion. Verse 29. Second part. Yet they acted arrogantly, and they did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances. Well, here's a sin. Verse 30. However, I'm sorry, last part of that. I'm sorry, verse 30. However, thou didst bear with them for many years and admonish them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, here it is. You gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. So what do you see? See, there a pattern. Sin, judgment. Sin, judgment. Sin, judgment. But you also find in between. Let's fill it in again. Sin, judgment, Sin, judgment, compassion. Sin, judgment, compassion. Mercy, forgiveness. So you read through this text, you realize very quickly that the emphasis here is the mercy of God. 
think it's safe to say, if you'll let me reverently say this, borrow this, God has a bent. God has an inclination toward mercy, toward compassion, toward grace. And I understand He's perfect in all of His character. He is just as just and righteous and holy as He is merciful and compassionate and gracious. He doesn't swap off one for the other. But He reveals Himself to us. He reveals Himself to us for our understanding that there is an inclination within the nature of God toward mercy and forgiveness. Exodus 20, verse 5. There in the context of the Ten Commandments, He says, I've mentioned to you that He visits the iniquities of the fathers and of the children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, the effects of sin will carry on to three or four generations. But then he goes on in the very next sentence. But he's the one who shows loving kindness to thousands, not thousands of people, thousands of generations. That God will show kindness to one generation for that which was done many generations before. What's he saying? You'll see the judgment of God and the mercy, judgment of God passed. The inclination is always toward mercy. Toward thousands of generations. Whereas... Visiting the iniquities, the consequences of sin, third and fourth generation. Scripture tells us in Psalm 7, verse 11, it says that our God is a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. I think the King James says that verse, that He's, he's angry with the wicked every day. And Ezekiel 33, 11 tells us the words of God are this, that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather that the wicked turn. He's inclined toward mercy. Here's the point. God will use whatever means He pleases. Even suffering. As these people suffered, as they were brought back into the, under the, the rule and the influence of these other nations, He will use whatever He means, uses, pleases, even suffering, to accomplish His work within us, but also that He might show His mercy to us. He responds extravagantly, even as we saw here. You know, these people, they, they, they sin, they have the judgment of God. What did they do then? Well, they repented, they confessed their sin, and God was gracious. But He's extravagant. God's pretty extravagant in His grace and His mercy toward us. When I repent, when I repent, it's pitiful. We're pretty lousy repenters. We are. I'm not a very good repenter. And it's certainly I did not receive with the compassion and the mercies of God according to my repentance. It's extravagant. It's abundance. More than I would ever expected. People receive that. You don't read into this because that's the reason I made clear these two realities that you know, this, my suffering means I sinned. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we can look at that. We've watched a number in the last year or so of We've been getting these DVDs of the uh, Little House on the Prairie series. We were watching one of those, and of course, Laura Ingalls, if you're familiar with... I had never watched these before, so this is new stuff for me. But uh, Laura Ingalls, we watched her, and I, here it comes, and sure enough. I made the comment to Beth, I said, I wish I had $100 for every time I heard her say, it's all my fault. <laughs> you know, catastrophe has befallen Walnut Grove for the family or the world, and Laura has determined it's all my fault. Now, usually something like that is the result of an inflated opinion of ourselves. Listen, 
We're not that important in the scheme of things. You know, God's not going to change the direction of Bristol, Tennessee because of me or you. It's not going to be our fault. See, there's something bigger than that. The bigger picture is it? it's the glory of God. That God can bring honor and glory unto His name through our sufferings and He's willing to do it. But He's gracious. He's compassionate. These are not just suffering to bring pain upon us. These are sufferings to show forth the glory of God and to bring us back to Him, which it did. Every time they came back, lousy repenters they were, just like us, they came back and God was ready to forgive. You know, we've touched on already. You know, we live in something of a cause and effect world and, you know, this is the result of this. Much in life is quite predictable because of that. You know, we live by that. Some of those things are necessary. 